Support for this podcast provided by Wisconsin Historical Society Press, proud publishers of Madison in the 60s by Stuart Levitin, an absorbing and evocative account of 10 years that changed the city forever. To order Madison in the 60s and other beautiful books that share our state's centuries-long history and culture in service to the mission of the Wisconsin Historical Society, visit wisconsinhistory.org whspress. Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. In fact, the only radio home devoted to Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan, and since this is my first show during our fall pledge drive, I just thought I'd point that out. Our guest today is Nicholas D. Hayes, author of Frank Lloyd Wright's Forgotten House, how an omission transformed the architect's legacy. It's from our very good friends at the University of Wisconsin Press. If you ask someone who knows even a little bit about architecture, about Frank Lloyd Wright, they'll probably mention the breathtaking design of Falling Water or the glorious Guggenheim Museum or maybe Taliesin. Those in Northern California no doubt think about the Marin County government complex, while here in Madison, it's Monona Terrace and maybe the Lamp House or, or the Jacobs House. But before all that, before he became known as the world's greatest architect, Wright had a vision that was truly transformative, to design beautiful houses with organic integrity, which would be affordable to ordinary people. He called it the American System Built Houses, parentheses, ready cut, and starting in 1912, devoted an extraordinary amount of time and energy to the project, churning out more than 950 drawings, encompassing more than 100 unique iterations. Unfortunately, Wright's partner, Milwaukee businessman Arthur Richards, was someone with whom he already had a troubled relationship. Their Lake Geneva Hotel suffered serious financial difficulties, and the eight-story hotel they planned for the corner of East Doty and Monona Avenue here in Madison was never built. And so, between the transformative idea and the resultant reality, fell numerous shadows. Bad planning, bad execution, and then a world war. Finally, in 1917, Wright ended the program precipitously, sued Richards, and never spoke of it again. And Wright's assistant on the project, Russell Barr Williamson, was even more damaged by the experience, both personally and professionally. The rise and fall of American system-built houses, and one small ASB house in particular, the Elizabeth Murphy House, a bastardized version of Model A203, located at 2106 East Newton Avenue in the Milwaukee suburb of Shorewood, is the business that occupies Nick Hayes in this illuminating and engaging account that's part architectural analysis, part business lesson, part mystery story. It's an account he is uniquely qualified to write because he and his wife, Angela, are now the owner stewards of that house. He's also co-founder and chief technology officer of the water stewardship company, Wellintel, columnist for Sailing Magazine and author of the award-winning book, Saving Sailing, the story of choices, families, time commitments, and how we can create a better future. 
It is a pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, Nick Hayes. I'm so pleased to be here, Stu. I'm, I, I'm, and you've done just such a great job of setting this up. You've you've created the drama that we're going to talk about. Well, thank you, Nick. I, I love this book. It is so well written. It is, as I say, it is, it is engaging and, and fascinating. Let's start at the beginning about 110 years ago. What was Wright trying to accomplish with American system built houses? Wright was looking at uh, subdivisions that were popping up all over at least the eastern uh, and midwestern parts of, of the United States and uh, trying to figure out how to address the competition, if you will, of the Sears and Roebuck kit house. What Sears had promised to do is ship you all of the materials for a house for about $1,700 that could be stood up anywhere in one of these burgeoning subdivisions. You know, unfortunately, what that meant is architecture itself was devalued because you got all the materials. You had no idea who the architect was. And you called the contractor and slapped up a house and there you were in a subdivision. And he was worried about, you know, that kind of architectural anonymity and frankly, generic homes popping up everywhere. So he decided uh, with Arthur Richards, uh, his, his partner in the program, to create a, a different kind of, of inexpensive experience. Uh, instead of buying all of the materials uh, and hiring a contractor for $1,700, you could have a distinctive high quality home built on a piece of land in one of these subdivisions uh, by a contractor who was instructed by very detailed drawings, very detailed uh, instructions, and, and actually had received beautifully milled pro, uh, lumber pro profiles and all of the materials, frankly, the stucco and the brick and, and the concrete uh, from one source to build a beautiful home in the prairie style. He envisioned, I think, and so did Arthur Richards at the very beginning, entire subdivisions built of homes that all had a, a similar DNA of horizontal lines and long overhangs and large chimneys and outdoor gardens and common walks. Uh, he, he, he saw a, a beautified America with very individual, organically designed, uh, modest spaces in which the common person could live, uh, live and work and you know, commute to work. So the price point for our Elizabeth Murphy house, which is about 960 square feet, two bedroom home, uh, was 900, or I'm sorry, $3,700 delivered to the person who had it built on a piece of land and $5,000 to the, to the first people to actually move in and occupy it in a pretty nice part of town, right? We're, we're only four blocks from the lake. We're in between parks on the river and the lake. We were right on the, the trolley line. So you could, you could uh, commute to downtown Milwaukee and only about 15 minutes from here. You know, this was a perfect kind of neighborhood for these homes. Unfortunately, the program didn't last long enough to have many neighborhoods created. Is it accurate or inaccurate to call this prefab housing? It's a little bit of a hybrid. Uh, that's a good question. Wright instructed the builder to place cabinetry and shelves and dining cabinets and storage in exactly the spots. Our, our, our breakfast nook, for example, has the table right designed. Uh, in the breakfast nook, exactly in the spot that he designed it. But the only thing that was factory prefabricated were the windows themselves and a few of the cabinets. Um, most of what happened here is the factory milled all the lumber in all of the profiles that were required and shipped that lumber to the job site. 
and then told the builder, uh, you know, what it needed to look like. So all the builder needed to do at the end of the day was start to cut sections of that lumber to be able to build the house to the drawing. And so, for example, we have a, a toe, a little piece of toe molding um, at the, in fact, this toe molding is, is famous, famously elegant in all of the American system built homes. And it wraps, you know, all, all of the baseboards through uh, along all of the floors and all of the walls. And I pulled one of these sections up to do a little bit of repair one day. And I found in crayon on the back of the toe molding in blue crayon, in fact, that the house needed to have something like 968 feet, linear feet of this specific profile of toe molding. And there was the 968 feet and the delivery, you know, the delivery instructions <laughs> from the lumber yard. And, and the guy who was, who was cutting it, cut that three foot section and slapped it up against the wall and it hid the blue crayon forever. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. And how many different ASB designs were there? Of the 950 some drawings that are, are in the Avery Library, uh, which is at Columbia University in New York, you can distill 129 different building designs, models. Um, now, many of the models had uh, really close cousins. Our, our model A203 is a hip roof design on a rectangle with a porch that makes it an L shape. And you could buy our model as an A201, which had a flat roof, an A202, which had a gabled roof, or an A203, which like our house does have a hip roof. And so of 128 designs, there are many very cousins. But in that 128, it needs to be said that you could buy a single story, very compact, small house. I think the smallest house in the, in the whole family is about 800 square feet. You could buy a ranch style home that they didn't call it ranch then, but it would sweep out and go long. You could buy a, a multi-level house, two stories on one end and one story in the middle. You could buy two stories and three stories, and you could buy entire apartment complexes. So one of the American system built homes built but lost in the Milwaukee area on 27th and Highland were the Monkwitz Apartments, which was uh, an apartment complex that look, looks like a lot of them. Two wings with a center area, courtyard area, but in the American style uh, with the same gardens we have and, and similar windows and, and interior fixtures. And I think the house that was recently uncovered in Madison on West Lawn Avenue was an A202. So, That's correct. So that would, it, that would be a cousin of yours. It would be. I think it's a double A202, yeah. in fact. It is a cousin. That house, uh, I, I, we were honored to have been able to tour it during a conference a few years ago. Um, it's a two-story. It would have had, if I, if I recall correctly, three bedrooms on the second floor and a bath on the second floor and then a living area, a dining room, and a porch um, on the first floor. And the main section of that house is you know, exactly as built on the outside, a, a stucco, beautiful stucco interior with curry wood trim. It's really a specimen. Do we know just how many were built and how many remain? The experts say that somewhere between 20 and 30 houses were built. My inclination is that it's closer to 20 than 30. And the reason for that is that Many of the houses that were built did, in fact, have their contracts, you know, follow them, the deeds and the liens and the purchase documentation. And, and there isn't much more than about 20 houses worth of that kind of documentation. Um, about 12 remain now, um, some at significant risk, but many of them in the care of, of really attentive stewards, I'm, I'm happy to report. So 
what's left of the remaining stock, I, I think, has a chance of being secured. Is there an internal contradiction in Wright's overall understanding of where he fit into the real estate flowchart that he disdained speculators, yet that's exactly who built these houses? It was right. real estate speculators. What do we know about Elizabeth Murphy and her involvement here? So Elizabeth Murphy, I have a, a soft spot in my heart for Elizabeth. She was the wife of a, a loan broker and, and real estate attorney who lived about four blocks from where I'm sitting, actually, right down the hill on Edgewood, Edgewood Avenue in Shorewood. And sometime about 1901, her husband deeded her this piece of, of land on a block that was just then being subdivided from farm to subdivision. And so she got, a, she got a piece of land that was 50 feet wide by 135 foot deep that happened to have a neighbor to the west and a neighbor to the east, both two-story kind of colonial slash Victorian style, one farmhouse and one Victorian style house already there. So I think she was 56 years old or so when she was able to procure the drawings to build an, a model A203 from Arthur Richards probably because they were both real estate speculators and they both had they both had properties on the same block and probably they were members of the same association and Richards had these drawings for sale and wanted to sell the materials from his from his uh, factory that was building American system built lumber and profiles so she secured the the drawings and planned to build and then sell the house and I expect she was going to retire on on the proceeds what ended up happening is that she signed the contract in uh, March. The foundations were dug in April or May. And in July, Wright canceled his contract with Richards and essentially began to erase American system built homes from history. But this house had had a lien and a work stoppage on it during the early stages of the construction. So it took 28 total months, 24 more months after the contract was signed to complete the house. So she ended up not earning much profit. She was in a lawsuit with the, the contractor himself for non-payment, and she was unable to sell the house for a very long period of time. And that, that kept her from both the earnings of the sale or, or rent payments. And she walked away and nobody's ever heard from her ever since. <laughs> But the house was named for Elizabeth Murphy because the tradition among writophiles is that you name the house for the person who bought it. <laughs> One would think that eventually it, it should be, you know, the, the Nick and Angela Hayes house because of what you've done in terms of stewardship. But to, to honor Elizabeth Murphy, we'll, we'll keep it as Elizabeth Murphy house, uh, at least for the time being. And we're going to get into the detail of why Wright walked away and the business problems and the fact that this went unknown for, for decades and, and the construction problems. We're going to get into that with Nick Hayes in a little bit. But one thing that is not speculative is how important WORT radio is to the listeners in formerly city of Madison and then South Central Wisconsin. And now thanks to the internet and our brand new app, to people around the world. And this, you know, the fact that we have applied new iterations of technology to become available everywhere, the fact that thanks to the support of listeners like you out there in Radioland or Intertubes Land, 
that we're available everywhere. Nick, what do you think Frank Lloyd Wright would think of something like listener-sponsored community radio? I think that um, that Frank Lloyd Wright, despite you know many of both the mythologic and true statements about his personality and his and his crotchetiness, I think that he had a special place in his heart for for things like public radio that serve and benefit the public good. I think he'd have been all over it. And he probably found a way to create some fame through it as well. (laughs) What what would he think of of our ability to, as I say, grow from a single small transmitter on the east side to now an antenna on on a large television tower on the west side, which expanded our radius and then internet and then the app would, would would he appreciate that kind of use of technology to advance and improve and expand our range and our ability to serve a public? I think so for certain. I, I think that um, that Wright was uh, a, a connoisseur of of technology. You know, he loved the automobile when the automobile was brand new. For example, he collected great cars. He loved thinking about the ways he might engineer height in buildings using materials that weren't ready for it. He was all over pushing the boundaries of tech and of, of communication and of transport. So I think he'd, he'd, he'd be right with us here. I, I also think he would, he'd express it with, a, with a, a special kind of Wrightian persona. He might've taken ownership for some <laughs> <laughs> So friends, be like Frank Lloyd Wright. Give us a call at 256-2001 or go online at wrtfm.org and show your support for, if you'd like to show your support for Mass and Bookbeat, I'd sure appreciate it. But show your support for the whole station. We, we've been there for you for more than 45 years. You hear from us throughout the years. Now's one of the times we need to hear from you. 256-2001, online at wrtfm.org. Uh, we, of course, have some great new thank you gifts. We've got new headphones. We've got a new shirt. We've got a new mask. But you don't do it so much for the thank you gifts. You do it for the fact that you listen and you give. You listen, you give. And please give us a call. And now we're going to continue our conversation with Nick Hayes. The book, again, is Frank Lloyd Wright's Forgotten House, How No Mission Transformed the Architect's Legacy. As you said, the, the house is, the main house is 960 square feet. You can see the whole thing in about three minutes. Give us a tour as it stands after the work you've put in. Well, the house is much more close to its original feel in a couple of ways. Let me back up and let me point out a couple of things. Um, when we give tours of the house, one of the very first things we do is, is point out its flaws. And one of its flaws is that it's a 32 foot wide house on a 50 foot lot. And um, in 1917, when it was built, it had no garage. And because it was built between two buildings that were very close to it on either side, it couldn't have a, a driveway added uh, later on. So there's no place to park a car here. So in the 70s, um, when cars became ubiquitous, effectively, the then owners petitioned the village and they were allowed to, to dig, excavate underneath our sleeping porch and add a garage uh, under the house, which, which alters the, the front appearance of the house. The true rightophiles, the real purists, view that as a lamentable addition, which is, which is something I like, to, I like to repeat. We need it, frankly. We have to have a place to park our garage. So it's, it's convenient, but it is, in fact, a difference. The other thing that's, that's different about the house is that Wright designed the house to have a very large 320-square-foot roofed 
outdoor porch called a sleeping porch. And he did it because in 1917, tuberculosis was raging. And so the idea was to have people sleep outside in the open air where it would be healthier for them to do that. So our porch is called a sleeping porch. Um, it was almost immediately enclosed by the first family to move in, the Kibbe family, because they needed, the, they needed to gain the space. So I'm currently speaking to you from that sleeping porch, but it's glassed in and it's now our den. So that is different. However, the rest of the home is almost amazingly well-preserved. All of the banding in the home, all of the birch trim, all of the cabinetry, uh, with, with the exception of the lowers in the kitchen, is the original cabinetry where Wright intended to be placed. And it even has on it the two coats of amber shellac that were specified and rolled on by the contractor uh, 103 years ago. None of the trim in this home has ever been painted. You have a historic sensation when you walk into the space because you're looking at the builder's work and it's exactly as it, as it was intended uh, uh, you know, 100 years ago. I, I wanna say that what's different about our presence here versus prior owners, it's a, it's a very small house. And we moved here because we were on a quest to downsize. My wife and I have two wonderful adult daughters. They were off in college. We were in a house too big for us. So we, we found this place and moved in and, and cut our possessions in half uh, in, order, in order to do it. But we realized immediately that having our possessions wasn't su sufficient. Wright had been to Japan many times and he had seen sparsity in small spaces that were beautifully lit by lots and lots of windows as, as the way Americans should live. And so we have almost no room for trinkets here. <laughs> I used to have thousands of books. They've all gone to half price books or to other donations. I now have you know, the, only the, the maybe 100, 100 or so books I'm allowed to keep by Frank because that's all he gave us in terms of shelf space. So we really are living a downsized experience. And the house now feels, I think, much less cluttered than it has maybe for the last hundred years. Talk a bit about the notion of compression and release when you first enter the house. Wright played many tricks on the folks who would enter his spaces. The Elizabeth Murphy, for example, doesn't have a front door, so you have to find it. It's on the side and it's near the back. You have to walk you have to take a hike to get to the, to the front door. That was called, not by Wright, but other experts who, who saw it as an important uh, statement, the path of discovery. But what Wright was really saying is, if, if you stand outside as a guest and you have to look for the door, then you're clearing your mind of all your distractions by the time you find it. So when the occupant of the home answers the door and you walk in, you're present and attentive and ready to have a conversation. Or you're pissed off. <laughs> or, or you're mad. One or the other. Yeah. But e either way, you don't, you're not worrying about what you were worrying about 20 minutes ago. You're worrying about something else. Maybe Frank. Yeah. The fact is, once you've done the first little passage of the path to discovery, you, you do two more. Um, you, you take two more steps that Frank forces on you. You walk into a very narrow four-step hallway to get into the sleeping porch that move, that opens expansively into that space. And once you're in the sleeping porch, you have to walk through another very narrow passageway in order to get to the main living area of the house, which is also tall and, and expansive and, and kind of erupts socially for you 
And, and so that's called compression before release. And it has a similar, I think, Zen philosophy. It's designed to have you um, maybe bow or, or center or quiet during the compression and then come out socially in the release. And you do it twice here. <laughs> and have you noticed anything rev- that reveals people's personality about which way they turn when, when they enter the house? Yeah. You bet. When you get to the second uh, compress and then release in our house, you you are standing at a place where there are two ceiling heights, one short, one tall. The tall leads to the social area of the house. The short leads to the intimate area of the house where the bedrooms and the bathroom are. So you have to make a decision to go left to social or right to intimate. And what we have seen, in fact, we had a tour here on Sunday with, with 30 some people. And I would follow groups of maybe eight through that space. And most of them would turn left and only a few would turn right. And I would say, well, there are all of the extroverts and there are all of the introverts on the right hand side. And everybody would pretty much, you know, acknowledge that we'd identified a personality trait. (laughs) You mentioned the bathroom. Those who consider Frank Lloyd Wright to have been the world's greatest architect are not basing that belief on the bathrooms he designed, are they? No, they're not. Our bathroom is, um, well, I should, I should tell you that when we found the house originally, uh, the bathroom was, uh, it was probably scaring some people off. It was so small and it had been used so heavily for a hundred years that its floors sagged. It had layers of linoleum and pink tile and all sorts of renovations. It did not look anything like Frank Lloyd Wright intended, but moreover, it was still only six by six. And if you imagine a, a bathroom that's six by six feet square with a tub in it, that means that the tub is really occupying three feet or so of the six, half of the, the floor space, right? Well, Frank and Mr. Wright um, in this home had set the door hinges such that the door opened into the space, cutting the other three <laughs> feet in half, meaning there was no place to stand when you were in the bathroom. And the reason he did that is because if you happen, I had, I'm going to go to a slightly gross place. If you happen to be sitting on the commode and the door were open, to his way of hinging, the door would hit your feet, but no one would see you. And so you wouldn't be embarrassed. <laughs> You'd only be bruised. <laughs> of course, that was a big problem for us. So we, uh, in our bathroom renovation, in addition to make it, making it, really honor the rest of the home's architecture and vintage clawfoot tubs and other nice fixtures like that and the banding, etc. cetera. Um, we did change the hinges. And, and I can tell you that there was a lock on the bathroom door. So if you were worried about being embarrassed, all you have to do while you're sitting there is turn the lock and everything will be just fine. <laughs> Are there other things about the house, the design that you wish he had done differently? You know, I'm going to say no. It is almost a spiritual place to be for us. He was, you know, some would say manipulative. Uh, Others might say he was trusting and planning uh, optimistically for the way that he thought Americans might want to to live and work and play. This house has a, a welcoming nature to it. It wants guests to come inside. It wants them to feel that they're part of it. It wants hosts to share details. It wants to initiate conversations and discussions about things like the music playing in the background or philosophy 
or fine architecture or what's there in the book collection right next to you at the fireplace. And he, he isn't credited, I think, deeply enough for having felt that Americans were worthy of a dignified existence, no matter their earning power or wealth. We're talking with Nicholas Hayes. His book is Frank Lloyd Wright's Forgotten House, How an Omission Transformed the Architect's Legacy. And to remind you, this is the first of two shows we've got during the Fall Pledge Drive. And I hope you'll take the opportunity to show your support for Madison Bookbeat and the rest of the Wart lineup by becoming or continuing as a listener sponsor. Now, I know you probably don't listen to every Wart program, but you know you listen to enough to know that there's great programming here that you just can't get anywhere else. That's why you listen. That's why you give. And that's why I hope you'll call us up at 256-2001 or smash that orange donate button at wartfm.org or on the Wart app. We'll appreciate it. You'll feel good about it. Now back to our conversation with Nick Hayes. Let's talk a bit about the actual construction and controversies involving your particular house. We've alluded to them in passing. Uh, Let's go back to the period where Elizabeth Murphy is trying to get this thing built. And there's a, a carpenter contractor named Herman F. Krause Jr. who was in charge of the construction. Just how troubled was the construction and were the changes that Krause made changes or mistakes and was he acting entirely on his own? Well, there's a lot there. Um, let me um, go back to the timeline for a few minutes on, on that. Krause took this contract to build a house for $3,700 on behalf of Elizabeth Murphy that had been designed by Wright. And he, by the, by the terms of the American System Build Program, received then delivery of most of the materials on the job site to do that building from Arthur Richards. And he began to build the house. There are many, many ways where, where either mistakes were made or the house was slightly off spec. I'll give you an example of an off spec for a reference point. These houses were to be electrified, which was surprising in, in 1917. Some houses still were not, uh, but they, they were gonna put knob and tube wiring in all the walls and they were gonna place light fixtures, very simple sconce-like pole string light fixtures, about um, I think eight or 10 of them around the house to light it. And Wright specifically told the, the builder where to place those lights. And he told the builder through a top-down drawing of the floor plan that positioned the light fixtures throughout the house. What he didn't say is how high to put them on the walls. And so, when the, when the contractor began to place those light fixtures, they ended up on the walls in the wrong place. They ended up too high. In fact, they had broken the prairie line, which would have been you know, a travesty from the perspective of Wright. Um, so that's an example of a mistake made because the drawings weren't clear about what to do. And there are many like that. And another example, a quick example, is that there was a specific kind of bead molding that was supposed to be attached at the baseboards uh, and it was rectangular. And in that case, Richards didn't include it in the delivery, maybe because he, did, he was running out of money and he shortfalled, he, he, he shorted uh, Herman Krause of that material. But the bead needed to be placed. So Herman Krause went to the hardware store and he bought a non-standard one, a colonial routed bead instead of a rectangular one. And Wright wouldn't have liked that either. So there are many, many examples of that kind of mistake 
we've we've learned that as we look at them and find them, you know, we've learned to love them. In fact, we we feel as if we're caring for the forsaken because would Wright have ever stepped into this house, he would have had it burned down for all the ways that were off spec. <laughs> On the other hand, Krause is very careful to follow the, the, the spirit, the prairie theme, the floor plan to a T. We talked about the path of discovery and the compression before release. The second compression happens because of an artificial wall, a half wall in our living room, that didn't need to be placed there by Krause if he was running out of materials, but he put it there anyway. And that's why people have the experience of compression then release. So you get the right-in feeling, but you also get all of the details of this unraveling of the program. But don't you also have more serious changes like using concrete instead of Portland cement, things that reveal some of the machinations behind what all went wrong with the project? Yeah, so I'll talk about the, the, the concrete in the basement. That actually may be, that may be one of the driving forces for Wright's anger in the program. So Wright wanted basements for American system-built homes to be poured foundations. And that was actually quite radical at the time, 1917. You know, this was still a time when mules were helping to dig foundations and move dirt off of the ground. But Wright saw um, cement trucks as being a, a method of, of speeding the process. So he told the contractor to build frames and pour concrete. Instead, what Herman Krause did is he called in his favorite mason after he dug the hole and he, and he started pouring concrete block. Elizabeth Murphy looked at that, at that change and looked at the spec and said, wait a minute, I'm not sure this is the way the architect wanted it. Uh, the architect says, says poured concrete, you're, you're dropping blocks in, what's it gonna be boys? And Herman Krause, turned to, lo and behold, Russell Bar Williamson, Frank Lloyd Wright's assistant and supervisor and draftsperson on the American system-built homes and asked him what to do. And I'm sure Russell Bar Williamson thought, well, I can try to send a letter to Frank Lloyd Wright, who's in Japan right now, or I can just make a call on this. And he made a call one way or the other. We don't exactly know um, if he deliberately, if he fought the ask by Herman Krause, or if he just relented and said, go ahead and do it. But the bottom line was the house was made of concrete block. Had Wright known that, of course, he would have canceled the program even maybe a few weeks earlier than he did. But that was already going to happen. That was a, that was a, a done deal. And it was because when homes are being built by anonymous contractors who are subcontractors to a developer and the architect doesn't have a direct relationship with that contractor or maybe say it differently when the homes are being built for people who plan to, to flip the homes then and the architect doesn't have a relationship with the owner then that creates room or space for adaptations to begin to occur that are off spec and it was very obvious with many of the american system built homes that as soon as the contract was signed, adaptations were happening in the field that Wright wouldn't approve of. And likely Russell Bar Williamson took the blame for most of them. And that really affected his relationship with Wright and to a certain extent, the rest of his career. It did. Uh, one of the researchers that I had a pleasure of, one benefiting from all of her work, but also, uh, also talking with, 
is a woman named Juanita Elias here in, in Milwaukee, who in 1972 was doing her master's thesis. And she was you know, working in the neighborhoods around UWM, which is Shorewood, Wisconsin, which is where all these Russell Bar Williamson homes are built that were built in the 10 years right after the Elizabeth Murphy house and that look a lot like writing designed homes. So Russell Bar Williamson was let go from Wright's office pretty much on the same day that the American System Built Program came to an end, which was while this home was being constructed. And he, he disappeared for a little while to, to think, rethink his career and then came back to town and started up again working with Arthur Richards, the original partner of, of Wright. And they attempted to do a little American System Built Homes reboot that didn't go very well. But more importantly, they succeeded in selling a whole bunch of, of homes in the Shorewood, Whitefish Bay, and Wauwatosa area that look a lot like American System Built Homes do. In fact, an interesting statistic is that because Williamson was willing to be the architect for a developer who was quite a good real estate salesperson, he ended up with 52 projects in the 10 years following the American System Built program unraveling, Wright only worked on 14, but Wright was working with his clients directly. They were projects, they were commissions from, from people he knew. They were of a much larger scale. They were harder to get, they were, they were further afield. And if you, you fast forward to the late 1950s, Wright has become the world's most famous architect and Russell Bar Williamson is buried in the history books as somebody who was behind the scenes almost his entire career, despite his talents. The account you give of the relationship between Wright and Williamson is almost heartbreaking that Wright completely writes him out of his history. He may have even like torn a reference off a, a letter. So, so, so there's no correspondence. He never spoke to him, never mentioned him. It's, it's heartbreaking. It is. I, I'm, um, it might be, a, might be a funny thing to say, you know, but you know, we've, been, we've been using the words cancel culture recently. I didn't use these words in the book at all. Cancel culture says, says I'm going to write somebody off because I don't like them anymore or whatever it means. I'm not really, I really don't know. Um, but it does, it does feel to me as if Williamson was canceled, um, without a doubt. And back to Juanita Elias, she told me in, in a conversation that she believed that it actually had an effect on architecture. Architecture itself as a practice turned, moved into two directions. One direction was you'll never be known as an architect if you're, because you're anonymous behind developers who are whose job is it, it is just to sell large real estate tracks, or you'll be an artist and you'll, and you'll have the commissions of the wealthy. And unfortunately, architecture did go that way. I want to point out that Wright was not willing to let go of his commitment to sell to the working class, to provide commissions to the working class. And he returned to it in the 30s with his Usonians. I'm going to break in one more time to remind you that you are listening to a conversation with Nicholas D. Hayes about his book, Frank Lloyd Wright's Forgotten House, How an Omission Transformed the Architect's Legacy, and to remind you that we're in our fall pledge drive, and I hope you'll show your support for the station by calling us up at 256-2001 or smashing that orange donate button at wrtfm.org or on the Ward app. Now, some of you may know that I write histories about the city of Madison, 
And in fact, one of our thank you gifts is my book, Madison, the Illustrated Sesquicentennial History, Volume 1. Well, here's a bit of interesting history for you. When we went on the air in December 1975, we broadcast from a little studio on Winnebago Street with a 100-foot antenna. Our broadcast range did not even cover the entire city of Madison. In 1980, we hooked up with the 800-foot tower at WMTV, Channel 15. That expanded our range to a radius of 60 miles, so you could hear us in Baraboo, Aconmowac, even Rockford, Illinois. With the new millennium in the year 2000, we started streaming over the Internet, bringing wart programming to the entire world. About 10 years ago, we put our archives online, so you could listen or re-listen to your favorite shows on your schedule. And just last year, we unveiled the Wart app, bringing a new level of convenience and accessibility. And all those technological improvements, my friends, were thanks to you. So give yourselves a hand, and then give us a call at 256-2001, or go online at wartfm.org, or open up that Wart app, and become or continue as a listener sponsor. Now back to our conversation with Nick Hayes. In terms of cancel culture, Wright not only canceled Russell Barr Williamson from all accounts, he canceled the whole American system built from his account. He didn't mention it in his autobiography. He never spoke about it again. Why did he cancel that from his CV, in effect? That's a complex question. I don't know that we can ever know why. He must have been really angry, really hurt, really disappointed. He might have been a little embarrassed. He had written in 1914 that he didn't want to get involved with speculation at all and didn't think it was a good idea for architecture in general and that he was worried that his assistants might be attracted to that kind of a thing. And you know, three years later, he's, he's letting loose an assistant who in fact goes right there. So he's, he's quite prescient about how wrong speculation is. And I think that you know, when it hit him on the head, that he had, had made the mistake to allow that to occur once, he realized he could not declare himself an artist, a, a true artist, until he walked completely away from that. And so the drawings were put in the file and forgotten. I, I don't say this in the book, but I, I have realized it after writing it. The 950 drawings that are in the Avery Library, I think only a few of them are the very originals. I think many of them were the copies especially of the construction sets that were created by Russell Bar Williamson to hand to contractors. When Wright sued Arthur Richards to get out of the American System Built program and won the lawsuit, the court found that Richards had to send back all the drawings so that he couldn't copy them with somebody else's help and, and boot the program up again. And I believe that what happened is Wright took those drawings that were returned to him from Richards and held them in a box as evidence so that he could monitor whether or not Richards was actually had additional copies of them and was building houses uh, that were his designs moving forward. And that's the reason the Avery has the drawings. I think there were probably many, many, many more drawings that Wright chucked at the time that he was canceling the program and will never see that makes even more extraordinary how much work he put into this project. You bet. It was a, it was a massive undertaking and covered up forever. 
And it has had a rippling effect in, in architectural history ever since. You know, because he didn't write about this or say anything about it, let me tell you, there's one exception. Very late in his life, he allowed two drawings of an American system built, I think apartment building, to be shown in a catalog uh, produced by another publisher. But that was the only time it ever came up against. So he softened a little bit towards the, towards the end of his career. But he was, he was so good at excising this experience from his autobiographies and from the record uh, that historians who study right to write his biographies are unable to comment on this program and its significance, despite how much work it obviously was. So for years, it wasn't even talked about. Um, the, 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 the historians just were not able to do it. It's taken the un, un, unveiling of the drawings that are at, at Avery. It's taken the attention given to the homes by, by some of the stewards. The Frank Lloyd Wright Building Conservancy has done a nice job of highlighting the American System Built Program in their conferences recently. We've had to relearn this history by piecing together the details from little artifacts left here or there. And is that how your house, the Elizabeth Murphy house could go incognito for decades that e even somebody writing a thesis who would stand in front of the house wouldn't recognize it as uh, an ASB house? You, you bet. And, and I don't say this in the book either because I, I learned it after writing it. Um, Wisconsin's own historical society was commissioned by the village of Shorewood here in Wisconsin in 2011 to do a survey of, of the architectural historic assets in Shorewood. And so historians from all over the place came into Shorewood and walked all the neighborhoods and looked at all the houses, including the Russell Bar Williamson across the street and one 250 feet that way and one 250, 200 feet behind me and never recognized the right house in 2011, if you can imagine. So it's been hiding in plain sight because the American System Built program was so difficult to understand and, and so fogged by, by this deliberate censorship that went on uh, back, a, back 100 years ago. And how did it happen that it finally became known? Well, the beautiful thing about Wright is that he is such a celebrity that he has followers uh, and experts chasing down clues uh, all over the world. So... The woman we bought the house from, a wonderful woman named Pat Wisielewski, uh, she had purchased it in mid-90s, and she purchased it out of an estate. The three or four times the house had been sold before that transaction, it was still called a Frank Lloyd Wright design. So everyone who moved into the house up until about 1972 knew what they were moving into. When Pat moved in, the executors of the state of the estate didn't want to complicate the transaction with any scary history. So they called it a ranch house with room to build instead <laughs> of a house instead of a house designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. So she moved in, she immediately recognized special nature and she she thought it might have been designed by one of his assistants and so she she was always curious, very sensitive to the, to, the, to the prairie style. Fast forward in the middle 2000s, a write-a-file, an amateur historian named Richard Johnson was driving around Sherwood's neighborhoods looking at Russell Bar Williamson houses, trying to understand that history and also trying to figure out you know, how they got here. And he recognized this house as something he had seen in some drawings that were in the foundation or elsewhere. I'm not sure exactly where and said, I think that is what it is. And he knocked on the door 
and, and the study began. It took another eight years or so before uh, finally the uh, curator at Burnham Block of American System Built Homes on the south side of Milwaukee, Mike Lillick, was able to actually find the contracts at the Milwaukee County Historical Society that named Frank Lloyd Wright as the architect for the building. And that was the, the smoking gun that everybody needed uh, to, to be able to, to say, okay, we're gonna declare it his and move on. Of course, there was much more evidence, but they needed paperwork. Now, is the basement really the key to a quick identification of an authentic American system built house? You bet, you bet it is. Wright, Wright did this astounding thing with these homes Every one of the 128 or so homes designed is based on a particular balloon framing scheme where the studs and the joists are 24 inches apart. And he could get, instead of 16 inches apart, which is the standard even used today, he could get away with this because he used thicker joists in the floors and the ceilings. And he used a specific kind of sheathing or lath board on the walls that provided structure there. And by doing that, he was able to place long rows of 21 inch wide windows inside the 24 inch studs that were that uh, lined the house without adding headers. He made it very simple to make really a, a fishbowl house, a, an almost all glass house. Our front wall is 32 feet wide. It's 24, 24 feet of it is in glass. It's, it's quite astounding for 100 years ago. And he did that all through this 24-inch framing scheme. So if you want to find an American system built house, you have to go to the basement because it's there that you see the 2 by 12 joists holding up the 24-inch framing scheme for the rest of the house. And did Williamson not pirate that when, when he and Richards? Yeah. I believe that what Williamson heard from contractors in the site supervision he was doing with Wright is that they didn't really like this at all. It didn't, it didn't make sense to them. They liked, they, they knew how to build windows with headers. It was just easier to ask a carpenter's apprentice to go ahead and, and assemble a wall from the measurements he knew and the templates that they had. And so the Russell Bar Williamson houses that follow Wright's houses, but look like American system built homes, almost always, I think always probably have 16 inch framing scheme. And it's one of the ways you can identify them. Now, the first uh, owner-occupants of the house, Alfred and Gladys Kibbe, were nowhere near as appreciative of the experience as, as you and Angela have been. Uh, we would not call them owner-stewards, would they? Because th they really did not appreciate anything about that house or the architect. They didn't. They didn't like him at all. He was referred to for generations in the Kibbe fam family as that immoral man. It needs to be said that Wright, Wright had had his affair with, with Mema Borthwick in 1908, left his family in Chicago to travel in Europe with her, and then built, built Taliesin. Many called it his lair up in Spring Green. He was still reeling from negative press. It really haunted him. He was, he was viewed not as a, as a significant architect, but as a philanderer, frankly, and a narcissist at the time. This was his most difficult time to understand. Anthony Olufsen wrote a book called The Lost Years, 1910 to 1920s. And it's a, it's a terrific book and it basically says, hey, we really don't understand what was going on here. And by the way, that's when the American system homes happened, right? So during this time, the press is hammering him and his clients are leaving and he's having a hard time getting projects. 
And so you can see how the Kibbies would latch onto that. You know, they bought the house because Elizabeth Murphy needed to get out from under it. And she gave them a good deal. She gave them a land contract. She financed it for them. And they were newlyweds. They were only in their 20s, early 20s, uh, uh, when, when they were trying to buy their first house in, in this nice neighborhood. And when they got here, um, it was the smallest house in the neighborhood, frankly, and it was the weirdest looking. It didn't belong in Sherwood. It had all these, all these colonials and these, and these Dutch colonials and these bungalows uh, that were appearing. And so they almost immediately began to cover it up. They applied a different roofing treatment than the one specified by Wright. Within 15 years, they'd put siding on the house to cover the stucco. There were plants in front that were as large as the house itself to hide it. That helped in the losing of the house or the forgetting of the house. It was easy not to notice it um, if it didn't have the, if the features exposed that were clearly Wrightian. The fact that they enclosed the sleeping porch did have an unintended positive effect in terms of preserving one of the really unique attributes of the house. It did. I'm, I'm sitting in uh, a museum piece. And the reason it's a museum piece is that it has on its walls the orig original pebble dash stucco, which was the exterior surface for, all of, for most of the American system built homes. Pebble dash stucco is a, it's a stucco on which gravel of various colors is dashed that's why they call it pebble dash. They dash it onto the surface and sometimes press it in with wet towels. It was a way of getting a, a uniform surface without paint uh, and without uh, uh, as much material. And a carpenter contractor could do it instead of a mason. So it, it saved money, um, but it failed in Wisconsin winters for a variety of reasons on most exteriors. Because our open to the air sleeping porch was enclosed very quickly by the kibbies who needed to capture the space for their growing family, this instance of pebble dash has been environmentally protected for a hundred years. So, you know, the, the Frank Lloyd Wright Conservancy knows about this space. It's priceless and special to be in. And uh, we have do not touch signs in the wall to remind ourselves not to touch it. <laughs> I've written a couple of books that have some Frank Lloyd Wright elements in them. And your book has just a ton of illustrations of the architectural drawings and photographs. Were they interested in, in making this material accessible to you because it's a way to start recapturing this lost history? The foundation was, was nice to work with. Uh, Margot Stipe was forthcoming and, and we were able to secure the rights for reproduction. Uh, the Avery Library, you know, the, the most difficulty we had, frankly, in, in getting the, the imagery for the book was that COVID got in the way of the reproduction. Uh, that was the hardest thing for us. Um, we, we were able finally to get it done. And, and you're right, it's, it's really special to be able to show some of these drawings that have Wright's handwriting, Arthur Richards' handwriting, and Russell Williamson's handwriting all on the same pages to expose the history, it's, it's, really, it's really special. And, and I would add that the Avery Library, it's, it's not a library anyone can walk into and just see the images, but you can make an appointment there if you have a research purpose. And they are very helpful. I spent, I flew to New York and, and spent a good day um, with, uh, with drawings. I was exhausted. But when you're there working with these materials, you're actually touching the original studio linens 
drawn in ink by Williamson himself at, at Wright's direction for construction. And many of the drawings that were driven, that were drawn by other stewards, other, I'm sorry, other apprentices like, like Antonin Raymond and Rudolf Schindler and Wright's drawings himself. They're, they're all there to touch and feel. And, and it, gosh, it was, that too was a spiritual experience for me. It felt as if I was going back to a time before computers when uh, this kind of scaled up artistry was just being thought about for the first time. Wearing conservatives gloves, I trust. You betcha. <laughs> you betcha. And no cameras. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Finally, we, you referred earlier to implicitly to the Usonian experience. What lessons did Wright learn from American system-built homes that he was able to apply when he tried affordable housing about 20 years later with the Usonian system? Now that we've been here, it seems easy to see. He was disappointed in the detachment and the devaluation of architecture that happens with speculators in his first attempt to build houses for the working class. And so the second time he tried, uh, which was initiated with Usonia One, he was challenged uh, with Usonia One to, to build a house for $5,000 by the person who would live in it. And he was, was willing to take that commission and figure out the solution to the problem. I, I want to say that I want to say two things about it. I think there's a great irony about Usonia One and the Elizabeth Murphy House. So when Elizabeth Murphy sold this house to the Kibbies in 1918, she sold it for $5,000. In 1942, when the Kibbies sold it to the next owners, they sold it for $5,000. We're told because they didn't think that it was right to profit from a, from a house. This wow. was. This was before Americans thought of houses as wealth creators, you can, you can see. But when Herbert Jacobs went to Wright in 1936, he asked Wright to build a house for $5,000. Now think about it. The Elizabeth Murphy sold before then for $5,000 and after then for $5,000. So it bookends that challenge. But what Wright got with Herbert Jacobs is someone who was willing to show up at the studio and sit down with the blueprints at the time and talk about what was necessary, what could be included and not included in order to come up with that price target. So let me give you an example of how Wright would play that out. Of course, this house doesn't have a garage at all, but by 1936, it was important to store a car. And Wright looked at a garage as just a big expense for materials and construction. So instead he suggested a carport. And that's how the carport was invented, right? That was one of the ways that he kept the, kept the cost down. And he couldn't have, I don't think he could have recommended a carport to a developer who was trying to keep up with the masses, but he could recommend the carport to Herbert Jacobs and say something along the lines of, boy, you know what, Herbert, if you take a carport, instead of uh, uh, potentially these wonderful cabinets we're going to put in your sunroom or your alcove, right? Then, then he's, now, he's now essentially enlisting the help of the owner as a participant in the design. And it was through that kind of participation that, that Wright found stewards. He found people who, were, who really revered his thought process and who were willing to protect the homes even after Wright's death and sometimes after their own deaths, right? They, they put Usonian houses into foundations because they wanna protect those very special spaces as art forms. 
And that to me is the key ingredient of Wright's fame. And the Jacobs House, of course, which is in Madison's Westmoreland neighborhood, is one of the eight Wright designs in, that's been designated a World Heritage Site. You bet. You bet. And I, a, here, I'll, just, I'll just add one quick thing. If you do the stats on the Elizabeth Murphy House and, and the Jacobs House that rightly deserves its status, you get about the same kind of house. It's a glass-covered uh, a thousand square foot home with two bedrooms and a six by six bath and a walkthrough kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, th I think the whole development of the Jacobs house is th the key to that is that Jacobs was a reporter for the Capital Times. So he's working for William T. Evu and Frank Lloyd Wright certainly wants to make Mr. Evu happy and Mr. Jacobs wants to keep Mr. Evu happy and everybody wants to keep everybody else happy. And that's, I think that went a long way towards making that project so successful because everyone had a vested interest in making each other happy. You bet, you bet, I agree. I, and, and just said really simply, when the architect is making the client happy, it's a lot easier to get everybody else on the same train. <laughs> And, and I'm, I'm sure, unlike the Kibbe, unlike uh, Mr. Kibbe, that when Herbert Jacobs went to F Falling Water, he got out of the car and looked. He did. I'm afraid that the Kibbies would not pay attention to Frank Lloyd right after they left. <laughs> oh, so sad, so sad. I'm afraid that is all the time we have with Nick Hayes. Again, the book is Frank Lloyd Wright's Forgotten House, How an Omission Transformed the Architect's Legacy. It is just a wonderful book. As I say, it's architectural analysis and business lesson and a good deal of mystery unveiled and with some very elegant writing. And Nick, I, I hope you're proud of this book because it is a real accomplishment and a great addition to the never small library of books about Frank Lloyd Wright. So I'm congratulations. So and it is Thank again you. from our very good friends at the University of Wisconsin Press. Next week on Madison Bookbeat, and that would be our second and last show during this fall pledge drive, the nation's Dave Zirin for a discussion of his brand new book, The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Charlie Pittman and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitin. Thank you for joining us and thank you for supporting listener-sponsored community radio. Now, as our friend Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison, listener-sponsored community radio.